Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Would you turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17 and 18. Our text will come from the end of chapter 17 and, I'm sorry, the end of chapter 18, rather, and all of chapter 19. Chapter 18 and 19. What a phenomenal anthem, um, choir, orchestra, um, that we are called to love with our hands and see, love with his hands, rather, and see with his eyes. This is our call. And today we, we approach the scripture with that intent. Lord, enable us to love with your hands and see with your eyes. In your name we pray, amen. Now, to begin our text, uh, our reading this morning, we're, we're going to be, as we have been the last few weeks, digging deeply into a great volume of Scripture in just a moment, but we're going to do it as we move along the sermon. Let me catch the rest of us up for just a moment. If you've just joined us, we're in the middle of a series. This is the fifth part, it's part five, of an ongoing series entitled Patriarchs and Matriarchs. We've been spending these last five weeks looking closely at the experiences of the, the ancient mothers and fathers in our faith to learn something about what it looks like to make this journey of faith and to make it matter. We look at their lives and we recognize there's nothing perfect about them, there's nothing stunning, there's nothing impressive, but rather there's something very human about all of these patriarchs and matriarchs and if we allow ourselves to look deeply into their lives, we may even see a reflection of our own lives, in our own vulnerabilities, in our own trappings, our own failures. So we learn from them about what it, what it takes to walk the journey of faith one step at a time, even if every other step, it feels as if you're moving backward. And we've been with Abraham and Sarah, and we've been with Hagar and Ishmael, and, and today our study brings us to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we've had some in-depth conversations lately, so I, I said, well, let's lighten it up and just do Sodom and Gomorrah now. <laughs> so today, our text will come from the end of chapter 18 all the way through chapter 19, but we have to know something about the anatomy of this story. Okay, the anatomy of the story, how it's built, how it's put together. Because the story of Sodom and Gomorrah really is put together in three parts. There really, there really are three parts to this story. And, and for lack of a better way to explain it, let me put it this way. The first part is what we can call the pre-story. That takes place in Genesis 18, 16 through 32. This is the part of the story where Abraham and uh, and God are in a conversation, and God is explaining about what's, what's about to go down in Sodom, and, and Abraham negotiates with God um, what it's going to take to redeem some of them, and it's, a, it's really kind of a prequel. We can think of it as a prequel. 
Because the next part of the story is actually what I'm going to call the story. You got the pre-story, the story, which is where the angels visit Sodom. They rescue Lot from that city and destroy the city. And we, we, we look in great detail at the, at the details of the story, which is the, the bulk of this passage. And then we have the post-story, which is after the city is destroyed, uh, there is this kind of bizarre tale of Lot and his two daughters who live in a cave after they leave the, the city of Sodom. And, and, and we'll, we'll get to that at some other point. But there are three sections. And it's important that you understand that there are three sections to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because of this reason. The oldest part of the story is the story. You would think that it's the pre-story, that conversation with Abraham and God. That was written many years later and was added to the front end of this story afterward. That's not unusual in the Bible. In fact, the simplest example that we have in this situation is our Gospels. When you turn to your Bible and it says you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, it's not because Matthew was written first. We believe Mark was written first, but, but it's put in that order for a particular reason in that part of the book. For the same reason and in the same way, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is laid out in kind of a continuous narrative uh, for a particular reason, but the oldest part is the middle, the story itself. So for our study today, I want us to begin there, and then I want us to do kind of a Star Wars thing. I want us to, to go back to the prequel and maybe have better luck with this prequel as we try to understand the prequel gives a kind of theological framing of what just happened in the story. Are you with me so far? Got to hang on, put the seatbelt on, hang on to the handlebars because we're going to cover a lot of territory this day. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, you can be the most casual reader of Scripture and know something about Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, you don't even have to be part of the, the church. You don't even have to be part of the faith. Most people have heard those names, Sodom and Gomorrah, and at the very basic level, most understand the basic gist of the story. These were cities so filled with depravity and sin that God wiped them from the face of the earth, and that's the gist of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what a basic surface-level reading will give a casual student of the Bible. But there's always more to the story, isn't there? In fact, what we're going to do to begin and lay the foundation is we're going to reach back into the prequel and grab one verse. We're going to borrow one verse from the prequel to set the stage for us. That comes to us in Genesis 18, beginning in verse 20. God says, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave is their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, before we move any further into this story, this remarkable uh, three-part story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have to understand that is a powerful line right there. All of these stories in the patriarchs and matriarchs have been setting up an introduction of a God who is different than all the other gods in the region, right? And here is a God who just two weeks ago, you and I learned two weeks ago, that this is a God who, unlike any of his neighbors, can see and hear the affairs of humankind. 
He is El-Roi, the God who sees. Ishmael is a word that helped us. God hears. He is the God who hears and sees. And in this text, we hear that an outcry from that city has made its way to the ears of this hearing God. And now, God has decided to go down so that with God's own eyes, God may see the thing that's happening. God doesn't remain at a distance from the people God loves. God is not content with remaining at some distance, some lofty position far removed from our affairs, but rather this text reminds us that this is a God who has chosen to descend in order to discern. God will descend in order to discern. And what we learn right here and through the rest of the whole of the Bible is this is a God who desires to be intimately aware of all the affairs of your life, both those affairs that you're proud of and those affairs that you would rather keep hidden. And what this begins to introduce is a God who will descend in order to discern what your life looks like up close. And there is no sin that can remain hidden from the God who sees and hears. No sin on an individual level, some personal, private, secret, immoral sin, or on a corporate, societal, shared, immoral level. This God sees and hears everything. So he decides to go down and see and hear what's going on in Sodom. And this is where we begin to ask, what in the world could have been happening that was such an outcry that it would reach the ears of God and cause God to want to descend and discern the affairs of Sodom? What was the sin of Sodom? This is where a careful reading of the Scripture is absolutely necessary. If you and I are casual about our reading, if we're not responsible but only casual, you and I can be tempted to gloss right over stories in the Bible that we think we already know everything about. And in so doing, here's what we do. Not just this story, but every story. We will inadvertently impose our contemporary presuppositions upon an ancient text and assume that it says some things that the ancient text never claims for itself. So this is why today we need to look directly into the text and allow the Bible to speak for the Bible. So let's begin in chapter 19, verse 1 of Genesis. The two angels, now remember, let me set this up for you. There were two angels that were with Abraham and Sarah. They had gone and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, yeah, right. Laughed. Remember, that was last week. They left Abraham and Sarah, and they went to Sodom to meet with Abraham's nephew, Lot. Lot was the only righteous family in Sodom. And so this is where we pick up the story. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. If I had time, I would like to tell you about what it means to sit in the gateway. You remember last week we found Abraham sitting at the entrance of his own tent. Remember in the the heat of the day, he's melancholy. He's got acedia. He's like, oh, where has my life gone? At the seat, at the entrance of his tent. And here we find Lot sitting at the gateway of Sodom. Have you ever been a part of the group that you realized you were never a part of a group? 
Have you ever been part of a group that you realized you were really never part of? Ever live somewhere where you recognize, yeah, this is my home, this is where I get my mail, this is where I work, but this is not me. Yeah. See, already, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is inviting you and me to recognize that our address is there too. He's sitting at the gateway as if to say, is there something else out there? When Lot saw them, the angels, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, uh, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and, and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. <clears throat> they said, no, we'll spend the night in the city square or in the square. <laughs> he said, you don't want to. No, they, he urged them strongly. So they turned aside and went with him into his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where is the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have, and here is the most disturbing part of the whole story. So disturbing, we don't even talk about this part. We just, Look, I have these two daughters who have not known a man. Let, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, but they replied, stand back, they said to Lot. They said, this fellow comes here as an alien, and he would play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. A couple of observations. The first is this. You cannot overstate, I cannot overemphasize the significance of hospitality in the ancient mind. You say, what in the world are you talking about? What in the world does that have to do with what we just read? Everything. In the ancient mind, the person of faith, if they did anything, they opened their life to those who were strangers among them. And why did they do that? They did that because the God they worshipped did that. And last, I guess, two weeks ago, we went through the entire Bible, and I shared kind of a comprehensive list of scriptures where we tracked, we chronicled the places where this broad theme plays out in scripture about opening our lives to the outcast and the oppressed and the stranger and, and the one who has who come to you. 
And we won't go through that again today, but we hit the law, the Torah. We went to the writings. We did the prophets in the Old Testament, the Gospels as well as the New Testament epistles. Tracing this theme, and why is the theme there? Why is welcoming the stranger one of the great biblical themes? It is because that is a great God theme. That God himself is a hospitable God. And that's not, doesn't just mean that when you come, he puts out the cheese tray and makes sure that there's tissue in the guest room. I'm not, hospitality means that God has, watch, watch this, opened his life in all vulnerability to you and welcomed you in the midst of your strangeness. And as a stranger, God has said, I will give you food and drink. I will give you shelter. I'll give you a bed. I'll give you a roof to put over your head. Because God is the great God of hospitality, then God's people reflect that. And when we behave in a way that welcomes others, we are reflecting a mirror image of God's own character. I mean, this is the, the, the crux of the teachings of our Lord Jesus in this, this, this story. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And this guy gets beat up. I mean, he gets beat down, which is worse than getting beat up. He's on the side of the road, and this, this stranger, this Samaritan, comes and, and, and never met him before. He doesn't know him, and he doesn't owe him. But he scoops up the man puts him on his own animal, takes him to the inn, gives him medicine, gives him wine, gives him food, pays for his stay at the inn out of the money of his own pocket. And why? He doesn't know him. He doesn't owe him. He does it because this is how God behaves. Maybe there is no more stunning verse in Scripture that underscores what we're talking about here in terms of radical hospitality in the Bible than Hebrews 13, verse 1. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for in so doing, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Isn't that a great verse? And that's exactly what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot had no idea the divine nature of these two angels, these men who had come to see him. And yet in all vulnerability, he opened his house. He sprang up from his malaise there at the gates of Sodom. And he washes their feet. He feeds them food. He gives them wine, gives them uh, something to eat, prepares a feast, puts a roof over their heads. And in so doing, he emulates the character of God. Come into my home. And doesn't even know that he's entertaining angels unaware. So what happens next is a complete violation of all of what I just got through explaining. At the core of understanding the sin of Sodom, there is one verse in particular. It is this one. We just read it a moment ago. The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Now, the word know there in other places in Scripture connotes sexual activity. So clearly, obviously, there is a sexual uh, activity at work here. It's the same word that's used in other places in Scripture that describes knowing one another at the most intimate level. 
and what's about to unfold if the gang outside the house has its way is an immoral act of sexual violence. An immoral act, an immoral sexual act of sexual violence. It wouldn't, it would be bad enough already if we just stopped right there. But this isn't men outside saying to Lot, hey, who you got in there? They're attractive. We'd like to know them. We'd like to go to dinner. We'd like to have it. That's not what this is. It's a mob. It's a mob. And it absolutely includes sexual activity, but it includes an act of violence so hideous that it's more than sexual activity. In fact, this phrase here, that every man to the very last, the whole city, all of the people is the phrase. Everyone to the last man is a phrase that is inclusive. Just like in other places in the Bible where women are not mentioned, like the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that great text? And there were 5,000 people fed, not to mention women and children. Which is to say, really, it's the feeding of the 10 or 12,000, right? The picture that the writer is attempting to paint for us here is that on that night of great hospitality, when Lot opened his life up to these who had come in, the entire whole of the, the town, the city itself, surrounded in order to resist and reject and violently oppose the way of God. They were pressing in, hoping to have their way. In fact, maybe the best phrase to understand the dynamic in this text is gang rape. Gang rape. And the picture that is being painted by the, entire, by the writer in this entire picture, this entire scene, is that the whole of the city was so depraved, so filled with sin, that it was a concerted effort to resist, reject, and violently oppose. And when you think of it that way, you think of the text that Sodom has to say about Sodom. You think of what Genesis 18 and 19 says about Sodom, and we learn something about the sin, that it's sexual, it's violent. But if you want to know the entire opinion of the Bible, you check with the rest of the Bible. One of the ways we study Scripture is to not just study what the text says, but we ask ourselves, are there other passages that say something about that same passage so we can glean more information? And there are. In fact, in Scripture, there are more than 23 places where Sodom and Gomorrah are identified and described in the Bible. Most of those places are simply references to geography, and some of them are references to what it looks like to be utterly destroyed, complete annihilation. But some of those places give us an insight as to the sin of Sodom. And this is what I want us to hang on to here. When you pay attention to 2 Peter, 2 Peter says something about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says it this way. Yeah, he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless the depraved conduct of the lawless a society run amok 
When you get to the prophets, now keep in mind the prophets, the great prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they are writing to an audience some thousand years and sometimes 1,500 years after Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're writing to an audience to try to describe to them what a wreck their lives are. And sometimes to, he gives them a name. You're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, they address them. The prophets will address them. You're behaving like Sodom and Gomorrah. But when they do that, what's in their mind? How do they understand the sin of Sodom when they call their contemporaries Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let's look. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, we hear Isaiah with these words. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. In other words, when you worship, it's meaningless because when I look at you, I think of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he continues, when you come to appear before me, who asked from all, of all this from your hand? Trample my courts no more, bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. The, the new moon, the Sabbath, uh, and calling for convocation. I cannot endure these solemn assemblies anymore. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, they've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you make your prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because you remind me of Sodom. You, Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember these? And he continues this way. Why? Wash your hands and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead with the widow. So in the mind of Isaiah, when he references Sodom and Gomorrah later in our Bible, and he says, you know, our contemporary situation is not any different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? We've neglected justice. We've neglected caring for the widow, the oppressed, the orphan. So in his mind, the sin of Sodom has something to do with all of that. If you go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah has a similar opinion. He's addressing an audience with the same kind of frustration, and this is what he says. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen more shocking things. They commit, watch, adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from their wickedness. All of them have become like Sodom to me. And its inhabitants like Gomorrah. So when you ask the Bible, what is the sin of Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible, according to Jeremiah, is saying, well, it has something to do with adultery and lying and not being willing to turn from your wicked ways. Adultery, which, by the way, our Lord Jesus Christ said can happen in the mind and in the heart as well as in the body. Am I right? So Jeremiah says... I think of you, and when I think of you, I think of Sodom and Gomorrah because the adultery and the lying and the unrepentant attitude is so high among us. And then you get to Ezekiel, that great prophet who gets as clear and candid more so than any of the other prophets. He comes right out and says it. 
Ezekiel says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. In other words, this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did, not, and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So when you pay attention to the whole of Scripture, you ask yourself, then what is the sin of Sodom? You take a, you take a, a portrait of the entire landscape of, of Scripture, and we learn that the sin of Sodom included sexual immorality, pride, Greed, negligence of the poor, the outcast, the widow, the stranger. And when you step back and consider that that is the sin of Sodom, well then suddenly, Sodom is not such an ancient city after all. Can I just say it this way? I am Sodom. You are Sodom. Because we have lives that are as filled with deprivation as any of those ancient cities of the plain. Our lives are so filled with arrogance, pride, greed, negligence of the poor, the oppressed, the outcast, sexual immorality, both physical, mental, emotional. And we are all guilty. And suddenly, this is not a story about ancient peoples that we get to point to and say, shame on them. But rather, it's a story that provokes us to look in the mirror and say, have mercy on me. Because what the sin of Sodom teaches us is that at every possible level, the God who descends in order to discern will point out that on individual private levels of immorality and on social, societal, corporate levels of shared immorality, We are culpable, and God sees, and God hears. And until you and I come to the place where we recognize that our address is Sodom and Gomorrah, until we recognize our own participation in the outcry of that sin that was so grave, until we recognize that we are residents of Sodom, This story means nothing. It's not in here to tell us about something tragic that happened to some old people a long time ago. It's in here to warn us that the same can happen to us if we do not turn from our wicked ways. Lord, have mercy is our cry. Not on them, but on me. And that's exactly what happens in the story. If you move on into the rest of this text, in chapter 19 it continues, and the angels, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 19, the angels then go to the family of Lot and say to them, you're being rescued. You're righteous, and you're being rescued. And so Lot goes to his sons-in-law, which is a great story. He goes to his sons-in-law and says, hey, boys, pack up the family. we got to go. And they say, you don't know what you're talking about. It's going to blow over. It's not going to be that big a deal. Proving that in-law conflict has been around a long time. So they got left back. 
And the angels literally take parts of the family of Lot by the arm and take them out of the city and move them into safety and turn and level the place. Level the place. And then at the end of the story, and by the way, you know, this is where the story turns. They turn and level the place, but now because they've rescued Lot, this is not a story about destruction. You and I think of the Sodom and Gomorrah story as a story of great destruction. It's not. It's not a story of destruction. It's a story about rescue from destruction. Just like Noah and the story of the flood is not a story about God destroying the earth with water, the Noah story is a story about God rescuing a family from a world of destruction. And so at the end of this text, there's an eerie verse that comes up. So it was then that God destroyed the cities of the plain. God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot, sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. God remembered Abraham, much like God remembered Noah when Noah was still floating on that great deluge in the midst of the flood. God remembered, oh, yes, there was one righteous. In the same way, he remembers Abraham. But what does he remember about Abraham? Because now the city has been leveled, Lot has been rescued, and the text says God remembered Abraham. What he remembers is what happens in the prequel. And that brings us to the pre-story, the story before all this shakes down. Because when we open up the text and we find Abraham and God in this dialogue, it's a phenomenal dialogue because God says to Abraham, hey, this thing's about to go down. And Abraham's like, that's bad. And God's like, yeah, it is. And Abraham's like, well, what if you, but what if you found some people who aren't that bad? What if you find some who are righteous, like 50, 50 people? If and God says, if, you, if I find 50 people, yes, I'll spare them. It'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll relent. Then he says, okay, so 45. What if you find 45? I mean, you won't break the deal over five, will you? What if you have 45, would you still destroy the city? No, I'll relent, even if you only find 45. What if you find 40? Sure. 30? Okay. 20? Yes. 10? And there's great dialogue between the two that you want to watch. But God says, yes, even 10. Demonstrating that, yes, I will even be willing to relent if I just find a little bit of good, a little bit of righteous in the midst of a city so depraved and so covered with sin. What's interesting to me, a detail in this text, is that in that prequel, we're told in one of the verses, I think it's 18 verse 22, that Abraham remained standing before the Lord when they're having this dialogue. Abraham stood before the Lord. But do you know that one of the oldest manuscripts that we have of this passage in Hebrew doesn't say that? You know what it says? The oldest one we have says this, the Lord remains standing before Abraham. And there is a note in the margin of that ancient text written by a scribe confessing that he changed it because written the first way was too irreverent. That God doesn't stand before anybody. So we'll have Abraham standing before God. But if the original text is accurate and God was standing before Abraham, well, guess who called the meeting? And guess who's presiding over the meeting? And it's Abraham and he's doing it. Why? Because he's doing his job. 
Do you remember back in chapter 12 when God called Abraham? His name was Abram then. He said, I'm going I'm to bless you, give you kids, give you land, make you a great name. And, and this is literally what he said. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And the key to that passage that we sometimes blow right by are those two little words. I will do all this so that you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing to the nations. The beauty is that he was discovering the very thing that we discover is that you're not blessed because you're special. You're blessed because you're responsible. You're not blessed because you're special. You're blessed because you're responsible. Our Lord Jesus Christ puts it this way. He says in Luke's gospel, From everyone to whom much has been given, much is required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. And Abraham is there, and he's like, you know, I have been blessed, and and you've, you've called me to be a blessing to the nations, so yes, I'm reporting for duty. You've just told me you're about to wipe this town out because they're totally depraved. But is there a little bit of good in there? And God said, if you can just find a little bit, yeah. And he calls God out by saying these words. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Listen to Abraham talking to God that way and think about what it means about a God who would allow him to talk to him that way. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, This is not like you. This is not you. You're the one who sees good when we don't see good. And then as the prequel fades to black and goes to credits and the next scene opens up, we find a God willing to look for the good and rescue it. And beloved, gosh, for me, that's the gospel in this text is that if you and I are Sodom and Gomorrah and BT-dubs, we are. (laughs) We are. If your life, like mine, is filled with our our own temptation to resist and reject and do violence to the plan of God, to resist and reject and do violence to the way of God, the way of mercy and love and compassion and grace, If we are Sodom, then here's the good news. First, there's bad news. We're Sodom. But the good news is, even in the midst of depravity, God sees in you something worth rescuing. God sees in you that piece of you that is worth rescuing. He sees the part of your life where you are sitting at the gate right alongside Lot, recognizing, I have failed. There's there's something wrong here. And in our repentance, God rescues. I wonder today, if anybody here needs to hear that there is something in you worth rescuing, that even when you can't see it, God sees it, even if at every possible level you are resisting and rejecting and doing violence to the the plan of God in your life, God still sees in you the true identity of who God hoped you would be and is worth rescuing descending in order to discern how can I get you out of this situation. Today we pray 
And as we pray, we move into a time of commitment. And the reason we do that is because maybe somebody today has recognized, you know, I, it is but for the grace of God that I'm here. It is by God's own grace that I've been sustained. And maybe today somebody needs to confess that I yield my life before the God who rescues me, rescues me out of my own deprivation. Grace is available to you. Grace is available to all of us if we yield ourselves before the one who comes down to our level to bring us up to his. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, we, we stop just a moment to recognize that in every possible way, our lives are as vulnerable as any city of the ancient plain. That we too resist and reject and close the door of our hearts and minds to you and to others and, and we, we barricade the soul so that even if the kingdom wanted to be born within us, we make it so difficult. But Lord, show us this day your willingness to descend and discern in order to rescue us from our own city of destruction. And we will follow you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <laughs>